Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Patil Armenian, subbing for our legendary host, Dr. Danielle Campaign, who will be back in a few episodes. With me, I have our excellent co-host, Dr. Sajan Bakta. Hi, everyone. And special guest co-host, Dr. Chelsea Lima. Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about the hypoglycemic patient. So, Chelsea, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a board-certified family medicine doctor and a current emergency medicine resident physician at UCSF Fresno. And so that's where I'm lucky enough to train with you, Patil, um, with Dr. Campaign, um, and that's where I met Sajan as well. It's just been an incredible experience. Today we're going to be talking about the hypoglycemic patient, which is perfect because you know about these patients from all aspects, from your family medicine training and now dealing with them in the emergency department. So I'm going to start off with an interesting case uh, that I had recently of a 70-something-year-old patient who um, I got called into the radio room to discuss an RMCT request. And this was a patient that had been uh, was diabetic, was altered, and had a blood glucose of 24. After getting some oral glucose, the patient actually felt a lot better and the sugar was back to normal. And now I was fielding the call of, well, the patient really doesn't want to come in. They're fine. Their sugar's, you know, 110 right now. They feel a lot better. Can we RMCT this person? Otherwise, can they stay home and not need to be transported to the hospital? And so, you know, my first thought was, wow, our ER is really busy today, so I would love to avoid having another patient come in. But, of course, the second immediate thought I had was, well, what medications is this person on? And so I asked the medic, I said, can you, you know, list me the medications? And they said, sure, this person is on two types of insulin, a long-acting one and a short-acting one, as well as metformin and glyburide. Now, the minute I heard glyburide, my ears perked up because this is sulfonylurea, which can last a really long time. And so based on that information, I said, you know what? Let's try to convince the patient to come in because their sugar might drop again. Convince the patient to come in. Sure enough, in our department, the patient's sugar did drop again and had to be replenished with dextrose um, and ended up getting admitted to the hospital. So this, to me, was just one of those great examples of how hypoglycemia isn't just hypoglycemia. You kind of put it into context with what medications they're on, and I thought it would be perfect to kind of intro our topic with today. Patil, you're absolutely right. We get these calls all the time into the radio room. And uh, just on my last shift, we had a call where uh, a medic called in asking for the same RMCT. And the patient thought her sugar was low because she took an extra dose of metformin that morning. And we can talk a little bit later about the mechanism of some of these medications, um, but usually taking an extra dose of metformin isn't going to drop your blood sugar for the rest of the day. And so it really is important to transport all these people, and we'll talk about some of the mechanisms for the sugar dropping, but usually there's something else going on, and we really need to find that because it can have um, 
long-lasting effects in the body, whether they took another medication or took a long-acting insulin dose. Um, All these things can be dangerous, not just in the immediate term, but over the next 24 hours. What a great point. Now, Chelsea, why don't you introduce us to this topic? Well, you know how people say little girls are made of sugar and spice and everything nice? Turns out it's not just little girls who are made out of sugar. Literally every organism on earth depends on sugar for survival. A number of different sugars exist everywhere in nature because it's so important to life. Uh, In the case of humans, glucose is the preferred sugar and the one that we're focusing on today. Specifically, we're talking about a life-threatening condition defined by a lack of this sugar known as hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia leads to 100,000 ER visits every year. That's $120 million in healthcare costs. $120 million. Do you know what that would buy? Do you know what you could buy with $120 million? Tell us. (laughs) Well, 86 million Snickers bars for one thing, (laughs) uh, which probably would have prevented most of that hypoglycemia. Diabetes is a condition in which blood sugar is chronically elevated and the body either can't make enough insulin or can't properly use the insulin it makes to keep that essential balance. To date, there are 13 classes of medications available by prescription, working 13 different ways to help diabetics combat hyperglycemia, i.e. the state of high blood sugar. You can imagine then how easy it is to overcorrect and swing the glucose-controlling pendulum the other direction into hypoglycemia. For this reason, the majority of hypoglycemic patients you encounter will be diabetics who are hypoglycemic due to medication effects. But because you chose a career dealing with humans, we can never use the words (laughs) always or never. Your hypoglycemic patient won't always be diabetic, in part because some anti-diabetic medications have uses outside of diabetes treatment. Conversely, your hypoglycemic patient won't never have an acute illness outside of diabetes that's actually the reason for his hypoglycemia, as Sajin was alluding to in his introduction. So let's talk about some things you might encounter. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about pathophysiology. It's really not just that our human bodies are dependent on glucose. Every system in our body depends on glucose. It's the fuel for everything we do. Because it's so crucial, the body makes sure it's present in the bloodstream at all times, constantly circulating so that every organ and tissue can do their job. Now, I'm sure there are some snackers listening to this episode. By eating so often, you're just doing your part to make sure that your body gets that steady stream of glucose you need to survive. But even you sleep. So how does your body maintain that constant necessary blood glucose level if you're not actively taking glucose in? This is where we get into some detail about the pancreas and what it does. It's basically a continuous glucose monitor, always sensing glucose level as blood circulates through it. If you're in between meals and your blood sugar is getting low, the pancreas releases a hormone called glucagon. And that's the same glucagon that you carry on the rig, and we give it for low blood sugar. Now, whether it's the hormone your own pancreas makes or the manufactured hormone you give to your hypoglycemic patient, it does the same thing. It sends a message to the liver to release glucose from its short-term storage form called glycogen and gets it into your bloodstream quickly. Now, you know how they say too much of a good thing is a bad thing? There are also times throughout the day when blood glucose levels are too high, when there's more than enough glucose in the bloodstream to perform every essential function. Even in a healthy person, blood sugar levels will often be elevated above the necessary level shortly after eating, according to that constant glucose monitor, the pancreas. 
What then? The pancreas will release a different hormone known as insulin. And just like you give manufactured insulin to patients to lower their blood sugar, the pancreas releases its own insulin to do the same. And the pancreas does that because it has that Great Depression mentality of save everything because you never know when you're going to need it or if you're going to be able to get it when you do. Insulin signals to the body to put all excess sugar into storage. Glycogen for short-term storage and adipose, which is the nice way to say fat, for the long-term storage. So really it's almost like the pancreas thinks that you may never eat again after your current meal. And by maxing out glycogen stores, you will have enough fuel to get you through a day or two without food. After that, your body will start to break down fat at a rate of almost three-quarter pounds per day to maintain normal blood glucose levels. I mean, I think for all of us, it's really amazing to think about the pancreas and how it works and how it's really just constantly trying to maintain this balance because our glucose can't be too high. It can't be too low. It has to be right there in that kind of sweet spot in the middle. And so just like all diseases, emergencies happen when that balance is upset. So now we're going to talk a little bit more about hypoglycemia, which is, of course, when the blood sugar is too low. Sajin, why don't you take it away? So a big offender causing hypoglycemia is a prescription version of the hormone we've already talked about, which is insulin. Different insulins are often categorized by how long it takes them to start having an effect and for how long they have an effect on the body. Onset of action ranges from about 15 minutes for those rapid acting insulin to six hours for the ultra long acting. And they hang out in your system anywhere from two hours to two days. Rapid-acting insulin is often referred to as mealtime insulin. Its job is to almost immediately counteract any excess glucose in one's food or meals, so it never has the chance to hang out in the bloodstream and cause problems. When I prescribe this to my patients, I emphasize to them uh, somewhat jokingly that they'd better be injecting themselves with their insulin as they're taking their first bite of food because of how fast it works. Little bit of an exaggeration, but it drives home the fact that their sugars will drop like a rock if they don't add glucose via food to their bloodstream within a few short minutes. We see the scenario very often where a diabetic gives herself mealtime insulin in anticipation of lunch only to get distracted by a phone call or a child having a meltdown. They miss the window to eat and then they get hypoglycemic because the insulin pushed all that sugar into the bloodstream, into storage. It was the only sugar there to act on. So it's very important to remember that the mealtime or rapid acting insulin works very quickly. Just missing a meal can cause severe hypoglycemia. You can also imagine the reverse of that with these long and ultra long acting insulins. Their job is to take someone's blood sugar that on average is always too high and bring it down closer to normal levels by working every minute of the day. Especially in patients who are new to using insulin, they may not understand how slow these agents are to kick in. Sometimes if they get impatient, they may take more insulin than prescribed just because it's not working. In actuality, it really was just going to kick in a few hours later. And if they're using too much of that insulin, they're really in trouble. Not only does their blood sugar come down, but it will stay down for many hours. Now, insulin isn't the only long-acting diabetes medication. Many diabetic pills are formulated to be extended release to lower glucose around the clock. Not only that, but some immediate release drugs can become long-acting if they can't be eliminated from the body. 
Many prescriptions are ultimately excreted by the kidneys, and diabetic patients can end up with diabetic nephropathy over the long term, or even an acute kidney injury from dehydration, thanks to vomiting or diarrhea. Those kidneys may not be able to break down or eliminate that medication very quickly. Another example is the sulfonylurea, like Patil was mentioning earlier. These diabetes medications like glipizide, glimepiride, and gliburide, these are immediate release pills that are taken usually once daily and work by stimulating the pancreas to secrete more insulin than it typically would. If it's not being eliminated from the body, 12-hour glipizide might become a 24-hour stimulus, or 24-hour gliburide may continue to work for days in the patient's system. And if the patient faithfully takes his pill once a day during two or three days of illness, it's the same thing as taking three pills at once. So persistent hypoglycemia could happen if a medication-compliant diabetic got dehydrated from an illness. You also have to remember that sometimes these patients have other comorbidities like liver disease, or they're elderly and they don't have a lot of glycogen or fat stores, then it becomes really important because not only are they secreting too much insulin, but they don't have that reserve to produce any glucose from any other source. There's another group of medications, and they are called glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists. (laughs) We often refer to them as GLP-1s. They work by five different mechanisms. One, by stimulating the pancreas to secrete more insulin after a glucose load. Two, by inhibiting the production of glucagon. Three, by increasing glucose use by muscles so it's not hanging out in the blood. Four, by tricking the brain into sensing the stomach is full. And five, by slowing the passage of food through the stomach so the patient remains fuller longer. This last mechanism of action can lead to nausea and vomiting, especially when the patient first starts the medication or if the dose is too high. Again, vomiting can cause dehydration and kidney injury, and even the medication-compliant patients can turn their short-acting pills into longer-acting. Common examples of GLP-1 agonists are Ozempic, Victoza, Trulicity, Manjaro, and Wigovi. Now, there are also things outside of diabetes and its treatments that can cause hypoglycemia. Misuse of anti-diabetic drugs in an attempt at self-harm certainly can, especially insulin. Um, Accidental use or overdose can be very severe. The sulfonylureas are on a list of medications that we say one pill can kill, especially for young kids if they get into their grandparents' sulfonylurea prescription medication that can cause severe prolonged hypoglycemia that can be fatal. Beta blocker overdose can also cause lethal hypoglycemia, believe it or not. Um, Any condition in which PO intake has decreased, and as I mentioned earlier, if the patient doesn't have a lot of glucose storage, for example, failure to thrive patients, cancers of the head or the neck, or patients in sepsis. Any of these patients are at higher risk for hypoglycemia, not just from medications, but just not from having good glucose stores. Any illness at the extremes of age could possibly do it, as these populations have very little reserve, and they have very little glucose put away for a rainy day. 
I just want to go back to Ozempic for a second. And so that is the Ozempic that um, everybody's kind of hearing about right now in the realm of weight loss. And so you could very well see somebody on Ozempic who is not diabetic, who's on it for weight loss and either has hypoglycemia or actually what we're seeing a lot of, which is vomiting. Tons of hospital visits for vomiting due to Ozempic to the point where I mean, it's kind of unbelievable, actually, how many people are on it and how many ER visits we're getting from the side effects. Now, Chelsea, let's let's talk a little bit about how to assess these patients. Unless the patient or a family member checked his blood glucose and has an abnormal reading to show you, how are you going to know that the person was hypoglycemic? Well, because glucose is vital to every function of the body, the sympathetic nervous system, that fight-or-flight response, turns on when blood sugar is low. So look for fight-or-flight symptoms, tachycardia, palpitations, and sweating. The brain is the most sugar-loving organ in the body, and it's responsible for half of all glucose consumption. Therefore, patients who are hypoglycemic may have brain-specific symptoms, coma, seizures, fatigue, and behavioral changes. Being hangry is a real medical condition. But the worst symptom of a brain with too little sugar is death. And that's why we care so much about treating hypoglycemia and figuring out why it happened in the first place. I looked through the protocols by which my local EMS agency operates, and blood glucose testing is, very appropriately, part of the protocols for altered mental status, syncope, seizures, and stroke. These all reflect how low blood sugar levels lead to brain dysfunction, as I just described. And because a sugar-starved brain can lead to death, these patients should always be transported to the emergency department for further evaluation. We need to know why the body's innate systems of regulating blood glucose failed, and we need to be sure it's not going to happen again after we leave our patient's side. Regarding management itself, shocking to no one, uh, the answer to low blood sugar is to raise your blood sugar. Depending on um, your level of practice and your local protocols, uh, you can use juice, soda, candy, all the way leading to glucose gel, IV dextrose, and glucagon. Chelsea, tell us about one of the EDs you used to work at and what you guys used to do for hypoglycemia. Yeah, so you would not believe how expensive glucose gel and IV dextrose are and how cheap a can of cake frosting is. And so um, very frequently, we would have to open a, a can of cake frosting and rub it on the patient's gums when they were too altered to eat cake frosting themselves. And it was life-saving. And then we could send cake frosting home with them as a cheap way that they could um, try to ward off hypoglycemia at home. That's amazing. And where was this? Uh, Los Angeles. Okay, good to know. Now, the problem with hypoglycemia is not so much the what. It's easy enough to administer glucose and fix that number on the glucometer. What really concerns us more about hypoglycemia is the why. So why is that number so low? Why did the body's innate mechanisms of maintaining normal blood sugar fail? Why did they get so hypoglycemic that somebody called 911? And the number isn't going to tell you the why. Chelsea, tell us a little bit more about the why. Sure. So you and Sajin, you've listed for us um, at least 10 different ways a patient can become hypoglycemic. But we didn't even get into things like insulin-secreting tumors, Herata's disease, or um, like you see on the TV show House, lupus. It can be lupus. 
And with this, I'm not trying to illustrate um, our ability to formulate a differential diagnosis. If you take away nothing else from this episode, I want you to remember that so many things can cause hypoglycemia, and almost never does glucose administration in the field address the underlying pathology. With this in mind, all patients presenting with hypoglycemia should be transported to the emergency department for further evaluation to figure out the why. You may be able to make them feel better, fixing their brains and getting them out of fight or flight for a time, but make sure they give us docs the chance to ensure that this isn't going to keep happening. There are too many dangerous and life-threatening reasons why a patient gets hypoglycemic, and that same patient can very easily get hypoglycemic again after one-time glucose load if the underlying reason is not discovered and addressed. So I'm just briefly going to get into our SEMSA uh, protocol here in Central California where we're based. But of course, wherever you are, your po- your protocol might differ a little bit. And this is our altered mental status, possible stroke and syncope protocol, where as with all the protocols, we start with our ABCs, secure airway as needed. And um, for altered mental status, give high flow oxygen. For stroke or syncope, you give low flow oxygen and cardiac monitoring. Now, um, the first medication in our alternate mental status protocol is actually naloxone. And we've talked about naloxone in detail in other episodes. And then the next step is to establish IV access. And then right after that is to do an AccuCheck. So to do a finger stick for an AccuCheck and then record that value on your PCR with the GCS at time of the finger stick. If there's altered mental status and blood glucose is less than 80, our protocol uh, recommends giving 25 grams of IV dextrose, which can be repeated in five minutes if the altered mental status persists and the repeat finger stick is less than 80. In the case of a pediatric patient, then it would be one milliliter per kilogram of D50 IV push with a maximum of 50 mLs, just like how in adults, uh, 50 mLs is going to be the maximum for one dose. Now, if less than two years old, we don't want to just give them straight up D50. Um, we actually need to dilute that. So we dilute it one-to-one with normal saline. And so just note that because you're diluting that solution one-to-one, it's going to double your volume. So for example, if you were going to give 10 milliliters of D50, when you dilute it, that's going to become 20 milliliters of D50. Next step in the altered mental status protocol is to give glucagon, which would be one milligram or one ml intranasally. So you do 0.5 milligram or half an ml per nostril using the mucosal atomizer device. If the altered mental status is more severe than disorientation to time or date and the blood glucose is less than 80 and you can't get an IV. This can be repeated in five minutes if the altered mental status persists and the repeat glucose is less than 80. Um, And then if for some reason you can't um, give the glucagon intranasally, you can give it intramuscularly or IM. Then of course, um, transport, stat transport if patient is unstable and contact your base hospital per protocol. So it's interesting that, you know, dextrose really is your first option in our EMS protocol here. And really glucagon is your second option. And that's for if you can't get IV access. That's really because glucagon works slower than dextrose, just to put it in perspective. So glucagon does work. It's just not going to be as fast or as like dynamic of a change. All right. Sajan, you got any comments or anything extra to add? 
No, I think that was great. Uh, just know the concentration of dextrose and especially for the pediatric patients, it's not something we do very often. So just make sure that you think about it and have a quick way to do the math and administer the right volume in a time crunch if you need it. Yeah. And when in doubt, just pull out your Braslau tape and use that. Now let's talk about our take-home points. Chelsea, what's your main take-home point? Well, glucose is essential for all vital functions, and the pancreas constantly works to keep blood glucose in an optimal range. Sajan, what's your take-home point? Remember that hypoglycemia, we often encounter it in the setting of diabetic medications, but not always. So get a good medication list and think about other things that could be causing the low blood sugar. My take-home point is that normalizing blood sugar in the field is important, but it doesn't really address the reason why this happened in the first place. So every effort should be made to transport to the ED to ensure that underlying reasons are addressed because at the end of the day, hypoglycemia kills, and this is a reversible cause of death. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.